2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 to 21. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with us utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of this impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Please pray with me. Lord, I thank you for the scripture this morning. I thank you for your word. I pray this morning that hearts and minds and souls would be open to your word, Lord, as we listen to the unfolding plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for your mercy and strength, your compassion and your grace. Thank you, Lord, for this morning and for our pastors. And I pray that ears and eyes would be open to your word today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Good morning. No one wants to get a bad report from their doctor. But something that's worse than that is to get a false good report. To go on with life thinking that all is fine when, in fact, there are serious issues that need attention. When we are not warned and not aware of conditions that are unhealthy in us, we can't act upon them and the end result will, will be to our severe harm. Uh, that, in a sense, is 
what Paul is dealing with in the Corinthian church. The super apostles that he mentions in this passage and, and elsewhere in the letter had a, a misguided and exaggerated view of their own spiritual health. Uh, they had an exalted sense of themselves uh, based upon their own standards and comparisons with others. They were stronger, they were wiser when in truth they were simply immature, shallow, and arrogant. But their influence was strong upon the church. And so their, their influence was to follow their own attitude and heart. And so the effect was like giving a false good report to the Corinthian church. They were leading the Corinthians to think that they were mature after all, that they were following a good course when it was unhealthy. It was like a doctor uh, without really investigating carefully and giving a good report, encouraging to go on as you are to those who were stumbling into what was unhealthy. The Apostle Paul is worried about the spiritual health of this church. You know, there's the, uh, the old adage, do you want, you have good news and bad news. What do you want to hear first? Uh, so this morning, we're going to start with the bad news. We're going to go to the end of the passage and then work our way from bad news to the warning signs. And then we can end with what are the the ways that we can work together for good health. I thought that might be better than ending with the bad news. And with that in mind, go home and hopefully the Eagles will do well too. So. In verses 20 to 21, uh, Paul fears for the spiritual condition of the church and he, he lists those fears in, in two categories. Uh, the first uh, is that he fears their attitudes and their relationships have become filled with self-centeredness. And that's a, a legitimate fear when those that you are following after are, after are filled with self-centeredness. Verse 24, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish. And you may find me then not as you would wish, that perhaps there may be. He's trying to be as gentle as he can in bringing this up. Perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip conceit and disorder. Part of the danger of these attitudes is that in, in our culture and the culture that was developing within the Corinthian church, these things are so common we don't always notice them. People are angry all the time. And so we're not thinking that that's a serious problem. It, it may be that it's just a pattern in our own home. Anger is there so often, we're, we're not thinking that 
it's a sign of bad health. It's, it's the way we are. Conceit, pride, it, it's so apparent in our world that it, it seems natural. And it is for the sinful heart. Slander and gossip can be a lifestyle of, of our sharing and talking about things that we don't really know and that we hear somewhere and we're passing on and we're, we're putting out what is tearing down someone's life without even thinking about the consequences. And even if we have some awareness of these sinful conditions, these sinful attitudes and behaviors, we can use circumstances to minimize their seriousness. That it's because of the way they treated me that I'm angry, that this hostility is justified, or this is how they've acted, and so that's why I'm passing on information. It's, it's the circumstances, the conditions that have really brought about these behaviors. So Paul had this fear of attitudes and, and relationships, how they interacted with each other, were just being saturated with a self-centeredness that was displeasing to God. And he had another fear that he lists in verse 20, another area of sin that concerned him. Fears that there were some in the church who were compromising with uh, the immoral culture around them. Again, he says, verse 21, I fear that when I come, again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of you who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. It's hard to withstand the constant pressure of the surrounding culture if we're not deeply rooted in the truths of God and in a relationship with him that we value more than the opinions around us. And that, that constant pressure of a culture that is, is telling us this is wise and this is okay. And now it's beyond saying we should accept it. It's that you must accept it, that this is better. The sheer weight of popular opinion and now the, the scorn, if we don't accept it, that, that weight and scorn will lead our convictions if we, if we are not rooted in the truth. Together, these two lists, one that deals with attitudes and actions of self-centeredness that are common, the other behaviors of immorality that were surrounding the Corinthian world and that we see much of in our own culture. There's, there's much in Corinth that we can connect to in, in our culture today. Together, these lists are found, the, the very same qualities are all put together in one list that in Galatians 5 Paul calls the fruit of the flesh. 
all of these concerns he had were the fruit of what was a fleshly heart and attitude, which then Paul immediately contrasts with the fruit of the Spirit. This, this is the life of someone in whom the Spirit dwells and is active and leading their life. When the Spirit leads a life, then what will come out? It will be love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. But if a life is, is pushing the Spirit away, and the context of both are the believers. If in the church there are some who are not wanting to hear all that the Spirit has to say, and they're, they're kind of picking and choosing, and they're getting used to at times shutting down their ears, pushing away conviction, pushing away truth, justifying behavior, when that becomes a practice, when we ignore the Spirit's voice, then foolishness will start to look okay because the world is filled with foolishness. How else can we define attitudes that deny the rule of God, cast dispersion on the great mercy of God in flesh coming to die and save us at no cost to us? to disregard the greatest truths and the greatest person and his presence with us, to disregard that can only be understood as foolishness and will only lead to foolishness and will lead to deepening sin. There's no way around that. It's impossible to manipulate our compromise before God. A few weeks ago, I given the, the illustration of uh, Shin Lim, who won America's Got Talent, this extraordinary worker of what we call magic. It's, just, it's manipulation of what we see, so it, it appears as though the impossible is happening. It, and it's just training and work at the craft, what he does, and so he can manipulate what we see, and we may think we can do something similar with our behavior before God. You know, we just kind of move things fast and compromise and justify and, and tell ourselves why and what we're doing, and, and, and God may, we won't even notice. We cannot manipulate God. We cannot arrange our motivations, thoughts, and justifications, and God's going to be, uh, uh, I, I think that's okay. I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm thinking they're okay. God sees it all clearly, and it doesn't matter what we're telling ourselves that God will accept. Right after describing to the church in Galatians 5, the, the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, in chapter 6, Paul goes on to give this warning in Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. 
For the one who sows, the one who, who lives to his own flesh, will from that flesh reap corruption. We will bring into our lives that which will break apart, that which will bring heartache, that which will lead us to foolish, despairing, hurtful things. Corruption is what we will be embracing when we embrace the fruit of the flesh, when, when we, we just turn down the volume of the Spirit's voice, push it away. You know, take some of His Word, and, but not all of it. This was Paul's concern for the, the health of the, of the church because of those they were following after. So how do Christians end up in such a place? Those who do have the work of God in them, those who have the Word, they're gathering together, they're, they're lifting up Jesus' name. How do, how do we end up in such a place of a spiritual decline, of spiritual poor health? In the, the majority of the passage, verses 11 to 18, Paul confronts concerns that he has for this church. His, his confronting the concerns comes in the form of defending his own ministry from accusations they've made. The concerns he confronts are the warning signs that he sees. It's the thinking and the behavior that, that leads to poor health that he is confronting in them. So I'll mention four that we see in, in these verses. In verse 11, there was a, a lack of gratitude in them for gospel work. He says, I... I've been a fool, you forced me to it, speaking of the, the boasting of his ministry that he was doing previously in the chapter. For I ought to have been commended by you. And as we've heard earlier in, in Paul's writing of this letter, that he's the one that brought the gospel to them. They should know about him and be thankful because their salvation came through his preaching, and yet here, there, there's no thankfulness, there's no appreciation for the ministry of Paul. He's not concerned with defending his own person, he is defending the ministry of the gospel, which they should commend, for it saved their own souls. But they're not commending the ministry of the gospel. They they're no longer, they've lost their gratitude for it. I'm sure if you asked them, they would say, yes, I'm thankful, but that's, that wasn't filling their hearts. And once we neglect gratitude for the gospel, we become less impacted by the gospel. Less impacted in the terms of the wow we have for what God has done. And when we lose the wow for what God has done, then it becomes, and so what have you done for me lately? And we begin viewing God with 
selfishness and resentment and filling up our, our grocery list of what God should be doing rather than lifting the praise that such a God deserves. Gospel graces are not something we, we simply should agree with. Yes, that's true. It, these should thrill us. And part of our, our responsibility for maintaining spiritual health is to be renewed in our rejoicing and thrill over God and his gospel day by day. To, to come to the place again this morning where I'm seeing how amazing is this God. How wondrous his grace is to me. For when we are thankful, then we are eager to serve and obey that God. We are willing to accept what that God is doing, though we don't clearly understand it. We're thinking this way would be better, but I trust this God. So I'm content with this God and following him. They had a lack of gratitude for the gospel. That was, that was part of why they were slipping Secondly, they were more impressed by works of the flesh than works of the Spirit. Again, in verses 11 and 12, uh, I've been a fool, you forced me to it, this boasting of ministry. I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Whatever the signs and works were that Paul's referring to, we, we know this, they were through the power of the Holy Spirit. They're not impressed with those things, so they're not really impressed with the Spirit's work. What the Spirit does was not grabbing their hearts. What was grabbing them were the things that the super apostles were describing, which were just old-fashioned boastfulness, arrogance. They were being more impressed with how the world measures what is good rather than the very works of the Spirit of God. We've seen throughout the letter that they, they were impressed with a boastfulness that was foolish. Whatever success, whatever measurement of life impresses us most, that is what we'll apply to life. If what impresses us is how some people become famous, then We'll want to do whatever gets attention. How else do you describe the numbers of people who are on reality shows where they week by week uh, make fools of themselves before all America? Because the shows are based on conflict and arguing and fighting, so they're making up and living out in silly, foolish ways. You're wondering, how can you act that way there's a camera showing all of us, but for them, that's the point. You're looking at me. 
And that becomes so important that people are willing to degrade themselves publicly because they want to be known. Or if your measurement is just the size of the house of my neighbors and the kinds of vacations that they, they take, then what we're going to apply to life is I, I have to have more money. And whatever gets more money. And if that means I press myself to work, it's not good for my family, but we're going to have this great vacation in six months. And so we're making decisions based upon having more because that's how we're measuring what's good about life or, or it's power. And so then we have business people and politicians who will say one thing and they will, they will cut the legs out from underneath anyone. They will deceive and twist words to have power because they measure life by that's what I want. So what do we measure our life by? Is it, as we've been seeing Wednesdays in Daniel, here is a man of godliness and prayer who simply will not compromise. I want to be like that. When we read the Psalms of David and think, here is a man who poured his heart out to God in all the, the good and difficult times, he was just pouring his heart out. I want to be like that. Or we see someone who, in anonymity, just serves the needs of the people around them. I want to be like that. What are we measuring life by? the measurement we use, that, that's going to drive how we apply life. And people in this church will be becoming more impressed with the works, the measurements of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. A third concern, warning sign, is that they were lacking in love. Verse 13 for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. And part of the context, if you weren't with us in previous weeks, is that Paul did not take financial support from the churches he served. He he wanted to, to push off anything that would be a distraction in their view of his motivation. So he was supported from other churches. And he also was taking an offering from the churches of, of Greece to support those who were poor and suffering in Jerusalem. And the super apostles were manipulating all this in people's minds, saying, Paul's just acting as though he doesn't want anything from you, but this special offering, who do you think that's going to? Uh, they were bringing all sorts of, 
of maneuvering of motivations of what Paul was doing and why. And here, Paul is actually sacrificing financially for them. And so that's what he's referring to here, of not being a burden to them. He means financially. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, parents for the children. And he viewed himself, he was their spiritual father. He brought the gospel to them. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul treated them as his children. And we can feel the hurt in him from their mistrust. That they would consider his motivations. He who suffered so much and brought the gospel to them that they would mistrust his heart and, and motivation, that he who poured himself out to them, that they're pulling their hearts back from him. And he loved them, this, this hurt. Love is, we know, the, the greatest of all commandments, to love God and to love neighbor as self. And love is the primary motivation for Christian living. It's not fear or guilt. That's not the great motivation. The great motivation should be love. We want to serve God. That's what's driving us, our want to for God. And so when love cools down, even a little bit, when love cools down, godliness begins to wither. Because the engine behind godliness is we love God. That's why we pursue him and push away sin. We love God. This, this is why we don't pick up old sins and old habits. We love God more than the things that voice is telling us we should gather for ourselves. A fourth warning sign is that they were quite willing to assign themselves false motives to other people. Verse 16, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit? Did I take advantage of you through any of those I sent? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Paul is, is laying out that they worked with integrity in, in all that they did. But you're saying that was just deceit and craftiness. They were coming to their own conclusions, not only about Paul, but about Titus and whoever the, the other brothers were. They were coming up with their conclusions. This is what we think he meant and was doing. And then they assigned their own motives to Paul, as if that was the truth. And even if we don't 
share what we're thinking when we come up with our own motives about people, we're still slandering them to our own soul. Even if it's private slander, it's still slander. When we come up with our own thoughts of what's motivating, this is why they're doing this. This is really what they're trying to get. And we don't know this, if that's a false motive we're assigning, we have slandered them, which we've already seen is sinful. And this is an easy habit for us because, one, opinions just pop up in our mind. Thoughts jump in. And we live in a culture that reinforces the idea that we have a right to our opinions no matter what our opinions are. And that has become sacred in our culture. It doesn't matter what truth is. It matters what your opinion is. That has become so ridiculous in its extension that it's however we see ourselves is what we are. And so you can say, I think I'm a woman when we're a man, or I think I'm a a man if I'm a woman, or we can have a man who is in his mid-40s who says, I am a fifth-grade girl and is adopted by a family, and lives as a fifth-grade girl, and wants to go to school, and we won't be surprised next month if they let them. And this idea that identity is just whatever we think it is, is taking this old truth that my opinion is sacred. You cannot Touch my opinion. That's, what does the scripture say about that? That God's opinion is what matters, and before him at judgment, all other opinions will be thrown into the lake of fire. That's, that's what God views about my opinion. I can hold what I want. Well, you can follow it. I mean, you can live by it, but you will be condemned by it. There will be one opinion that matters. The opinion which is the sum of all truth by which all creation has come into existence. Any other opinion is false because all wisdom comes from God. All truth comes from God. There's simply... It's impossible for any other truth to exist than that which comes from God. And it it may be, we think, a far step, but it's still on the same path. That when when we worship our opinions, then it becomes easy for us to come to conclusions about life and about other people that are false and can be slanderous. And they were slandering the Apostle Paul. God's Word tells us this is a failure to show love for people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul is describing the attributes of love, he ends by saying, love believes all things and hopes all things. Love believes all things and hopes all things. It doesn't mean that love just accepts anyone's opinion. 
Love believes in and love hopes for. Love looks for the best. Well, it's easy to find the worst in people. Uh, love is not looking for the lowest, the lowest faculty that a person has to identify them. Love is believing in, is seeking, looking for the best in people. It's starting out with the higher opinion. It's, it's starting out with what we can look for. It's starting out within the community of the believers. It's starting out with these are the evidences of God's grace in them rather than starting with the evidence of the flesh that still comes out at times. This is, this is our responsibility. This is what the Scripture says. The Scripture says to hope all things, to believe in all things for people. That's how love expresses. Love is looking for the best for people. It's looking for Everyone we know too love Christ, so you're you're looking toward that and hoping toward that and being careful. This doesn't mean we're we're dishonest about people. We're not measuring properly. It means the intention of the heart is not to just love people's sins and to be captured by that, and, and that's how we're viewing them. Imagine if, if someone just took three 15-second videos of your life, and they just, one happened to be one of those silly arguments we have when we just get indignant about something that doesn't mean anything, and maybe another was when you were in a big hurry in your car and you cut somebody off, and you know, they, they just... They, Three little videos, and you show that to people, and that's who you are, and it would be true. That's what you've done. Think of what the world's opinion would be of us if we just picked out three of our lesser moments. And it wouldn't take long to find three of your lesser moments. Yeah, but that's not me. Why would we speak about people in their lesser moments as if that's them? So we've looked at the, the bad news, Paul's concern, his fears for their spiritual health. We've, we've looked at the warning signs that had led them to a place where he would have to rebuke them for serious sins. Well, what does it look like when we're working together for spiritual health? What does it look like when godliness among each other is what we're striving for? In verse 19, in the midst of all this, Paul shares three qualities of how he cared for them. And, and the this is the good news. This is what we should be taking. We should want to be like Paul toward the Corinthian church. That's how we are toward one another. Verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It, it is in the sight of God that we have been, here they are, one, speaking in Christ, all for your two, upbuilding three, beloved. And so the first 
in our working together for good health, it is to be gospel-centered, Christ-centered. In the sight of God, we have been speaking in Christ. Our motivation, what do we speak and why? What are we trying to accomplish and why? How are we interacting with each other and why? That agenda must be the gospel. It must be what Christ has done and is seeking to accomplish. We can't have spiritual health if we're not ruled by the agenda of the gospel. If we're not ruled by the gospel, what are we ruled by? If it's something else, it cannot be healthy. If we're not ruled by the person of Christ and what he has done for us, then what are we ruled by? It has to be just what's in the world. That's the only other option. So to to be gospel-centered, to be ruled by the gospel, what the gospel seeks to have happen in our lives, that means we change how we make our decisions about our attitudes and our actions. So someone has done something unfair to you. So how do you decide your attitude back? So what are you going to do? What are you going to say? What is the agenda that's ruling over your decisions? Or things are tight. You're not sure how to make everything work. So you're tempted to compromise, to cheat, to be dishonest. Uh, what agenda are we following? Is it the God who saved me, will, he will be faithful, or is it I have to do what I can to get what I need? And this plays itself out in a thousand ways. How do we come to our conclusion? What determines the way we act with each other? And is it all, in its entirety, is it driven by this person who burst into the world to save it? This one who sacrificed himself beyond description, who humbled himself are we following him, the one who bent down to serve? Are we following him? Do we have his heart? Do we have his values? Are we seeking to accomplish his desire to seek and to serve and love those lost, broken, or hopeless without him? To be ruled by the agenda of the gospel means we have to slay all other agendas. What I want has to be slain. This is what I feel has to be slain. I want the success. We have to slay it. I'm fearful. I'm just trying to protect myself. We, we have to slay that as our agenda or just our pride. We have to slay every agenda that is not the agenda of Christ leading our life. And at times, that feels unsafe. 
But that's what we, we just keep coming to the same place, the cross. There's no place more safe than in him who died for us. To work together for good health, we must be gospel-centered people. What is it that Christ wants to accomplish in us and others? That's what we labor for. Second, what follows after that is we make it our motivation to build one another up in Christ. Again, verse 19, all that we've been doing, we've been speaking in Christ all for your upbuilding. Now, upbuilding doesn't mean just buttering people up. My, you look good in that color. Have you lost weight? That makes anyone feel good. You know, and it's, it's fine to tell people they look good in that color and that you look like you're losing weight, but building up is not just saying what we think will make people feel good. It's building up is speaking gospel truth. It's encouraging and guiding people to the one who is all that they need, reminding them of this is what Christ has done for you. This is what he's promised for you. This is who he is right now. It's encouraging and building up and, and affirming when we see Christ in them. I'm so thankful for the way that you serve. I, I appreciate the way you, you handled that. I, I can see your, your steady faithfulness. We, we encourage, we, we commend that which expresses Christ, and we build up, encourage them, creating an environment that people want to serve him more and are reminded of it. We're, we're not bringing in reminders of what the world does. We're bringing reminders of Christ and the value of him. And the benefits of living this way are worth it when all that we do is, is focused around building people up in Christ. There still will be disagreements because not everyone wants to be built up. But if that's how we deal with people, we're going to greatly lessen the amount of drama in our life. We're not feeding the fire of, of fights and arguments because we're not using selfishness and we're not bringing old things back and dumping it before them. When, when we're seeking to build people up in Christ, we have, we have much less drama. And then we, we have the joy of the fruitfulness of God's using my life to encourage people in Him. God's using my life for the sanctification, for the growth, for the strength of people in the things of God. And if you're not convinced that is the greatest way to live, the problem is your love for Christ. You're not seeing how wondrous he is if you're not thinking that the greatest way to live is bringing people to see and know and love him. That makes ordinary tasks 
whether you're a stay-at-home mom with, with little ones and going through the same things every day and you're building them up in Christ, that's what gives meaning to doing the same things over and over. Or you're at a job and you don't like what you're doing, but you are an example of Christ's love to the other guy who doesn't like what he's doing next to you. That makes life meaningful because heaven is rejoicing over that heart. And that should give us joy. The third part of working together in good health is to love God's people, as Paul calls them, beloved. How many people in our church can you honestly view that to you they are beloved? That should be the ordinary thought we have toward one another, that they are our beloved, because we, we truly love them. And as we come, we rejoice as we see the faces come in, because those are my beloved. I'm thankful for the grace of God in that. I'm thankful that I serve Christ with them, and we're drawn to know them more, to share life. Do we see each other's beloved? To love is to stick with people. And not as long as they don't bug me. Again, the world can do that. To love is to stick it out. To bear with means to absorb the foolishness. As we're so glad God does with us. It means to care for, to serve. Well, let's close up with, with some diagnostic questions then about our spiritual health. So where are we in our health spiritually? Three questions. Who or what influences you most? Is it Christ or culture? Or who are you trying to please? Christ of the world. So what influences you most? Second, are you becoming more and more theological, or are you just content with just general statements about God, such as, you know, God is love and Jesus saves, which are wondrous truths. But are you content with just, you know, the big statements about God, and you're not wanting to be more theological, which Theology simply means the study of God. You, you want to know God more. What's true about God? What is God like? What does God do? What has God said? How does God work? We're all in different places. Are, are you just wanting to know more about him? Or are you content with just general ideas? If we're content with general ideas, we're vulnerable to deceit and manipulation about those ideas because they're, they're not rooted in well. I had a Jehovah's Witness come by the house this week. She knew all the Christian words to say. She was trying to agree with me as hard as she could. And whenever I'd say something, oh, she would try to embrace that. Except, no, 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 no. 
We don't believe the same thing. You're using those words. You do not believe Jesus is the eternal Son of God who alone died to pay for our sin. People can twist. Or you can hear that and think, they're a Christian. The pastor of the largest church in America says Mormons must be okay because they believe in Jesus. And yet they believe in a different Jesus. Jesus is a God, and we will become gods, and we'll all have our own planets. That's not this Jesus, and that Jesus isn't saving anybody. And a pastor shepherding thousands doesn't even know the difference. Why? Because he's accepting general thoughts. God is love rather than digging into truth. Third, these were supposed to be short. These were supposed to be 30 seconds each. Good intentions. Third, last, last, last. Are we looking for the Holy Spirit's work? Or do we think we can depend upon ourselves? If we depend upon our own efforts, we're going to be using the world's approaches, whether it's growing our life or growing a church. Are you looking for, believing that the person of the Holy Spirit is here and at work, and you want to be part of that? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have called us your beloved. And so that's, that's the hope we're resting in. You saved us and made us your beloved. You're committed to us. Help us to respond. Our, our commitment to you, our great beloved. We ask for the clarity we need to see where we may be drifting, where we're compromising. Help us to be encouraged where we're growing and embracing you. Help us all to, to serve one another that we might love you more. In Jesus' name.